Hello and welcome to episode three of Silver Screeners. I cannot believe that we are already on week three of this show. I know that it's still in the very beginning stages, but it feels like I've been doing it for a long time as well. I'm Frank coming at you right from outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And as always, thank you for tuning in. It's May as of this recording, and this is the time of year when traditionally the studios will release their bigger budget films, the so-called popcorn flicks. Usually around this time, previously at least, we have seen superhero movies, Infinity War and Endgame, I think, were both late April releases. Uh, the original trilogy of Star Wars and the prequels, they both were uh, released in May, both trilogies, so that's six films, all May releases. I think Solo actually was a May release back in 2018, which I guess that means that it ran concurrently with Infinity War, actually. So. 2018 just feels like a long time ago at this point. But yes, I saw both of them in the theaters. Oh, yeah. So while we were on the subject of 2018, there was a twofer from the horror suspense thriller genre with two films duking it out, I think from like late April through early June. And those two films were Hereditary and A Quiet Place, both of which are going to be covered on this show in the future. But an upcoming release that I got to be honest, I'm properly pumped for is the delayed sequel, A Quiet Place 2. John Krasinski, who directed and starred in the original, he's once again behind the camera. The full trailer just dropped this week, uh, only about a day or so ago. And I do have to say that given how the original ended on probably one of the biggest jolts, one of the biggest jolts of a closing shot in recent memory, uh, not to mention one of the most emotional climactic moments in recent memory, particularly within the genre. Um, I am pretty eager to find out what creative choices they made for A Quiet Place 2. Uh, what's interesting is that it actually already had its official premiere um, back in March 8th of 2020 uh, at the Lincoln Center in New York City, but the mainstream release was subsequently delayed, of course, and rescheduled a few times. At one point, it was going to be delayed, I think, until September of twenty. Then it was going to be April of 21, but uh, it's solidified. It's solidified that now, at least here in the United States, at least uh, it's going to be released on Friday, May 28th and in theaters. Yes, in theaters. Emily Blunt, Noah Jupe, Mill Millicent Simmons, they all return as the Abbott family. Joining them is Killian Murphy, uh, most known for the Netflix series Peaky Blinders, the Dark Knight trilogy where he plays the Scarecrow, uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception. Also joining the cast is Jaiman Ansu of Guardians of the Galaxy and more Oscar-friendly fare like 2006's Blood Diamond, 2002's In America, both of which got him acting nominations. Uh, he first came onto the Hollywood scene back in 1997 with Amistad. But A Quiet Place too. this is one that I will see despite my inherent apprehension of anything that is a sequel. I mean... You know, for every Godfather 2, for every Empire Strikes Back, you have at least 900,000 Speed 2s and Police Academy 5s and Mamma Mia 2s to glut the cinemas. But open mind. So that's A Quiet Place 2 on May 28th. Again, in movie theaters. I have not seen anything at a movie theater since 1917. The movie, that is. Uh, <laughs> not, the, uh, not the year. Um, but anyway, that was back in January of 2020. So that's almost a year and a half. So for a film enthusiast like I am, uh, not to mention the fact that I'm doing this podcast and 
also the fact that I do speak professionally around New England about this kind of stuff. It's, it's been mind boggling when I think about how much time has gone by since I have stepped foot inside a movie theater. Small change, I know, compared to what's been going on in the world, but it's just mind blowing to me that it's already been that long of a stretch of time. I think we're all going to be coming out of this thing, uh, perhaps a little bit exhausted, perhaps a little bit damaged, but uh, I have faith that we will be pulling together. I honestly, truly do. And I am privileged enough to be able to be fully vaccinated. So it'll be excited to return safely and practically to a movie theater where I can revisit uh, the old favorites, you know, people on their phones, people loudly and smugly predicting in their infinite cinematic wisdom what will happen next in the film for the benefit of none of us lowly plebeians in the theater who ever asked. But you know what? All of those inconveniences of watching a movie in a theater, it's worth it. It's worth it. I do miss theaters. I miss the movie theater atmosphere. And I will, I will happily go once it's safe to do so, once it's practical, um, especially to the smaller independent theaters in my area as well. Uh, sticking with all of the safety protocols in place for as long as necessary. Hell, you know what? I'll even go to see Speed 2 on the big screen. Well, <laughs> you know what? Scratch that. Never mind. Uh, strike that. Make that a quiet place too, and we got a deal. Uh, so next, we have a winner of last episode's trivia question. So right now, I am introducing a new thing. Trivia winners from this point on and retroactively will get sent to them a tailor-made meme via email, social media, or whatever their preferred method of contact is. And that meme is going to be from whatever the movie or the actor in question is. It'll contain a special greeting from me. Um, I would send Fandango gift cards or some such thing, but that adds up financially. <laughs> I'll wait until the show hits 20 trillion subscribers and I can make my fortune. And then we'll talk about retroactively sending those puppies out to previous winners. Last week's winners, uh, Hugh and Monique, you have memes coming your way for correctly identifying 1963's Charade as the movie where this podcast's theme is from. Again, a public domain film, so don't come after me. Uh, the question I posed last week was, name the film where a character named Mrs. George boasts of being a cool mom to her teenage daughter's friends, only to have her disdainful daughter tell her, stop talking. And that was 2004's Mean Girls with comedian Amy Poehler as the mother in question. So a boisterous, fist-bumping, and heartfelt shout-out to my friends and fellow podcasters on the other side of the Atlantic, Stu and Al, of the year-old podcast, Stu and Al Pod. They nailed it all the way from Britain. It's a podcast that they have going that's, I say, year-old because their first episode dropped in May of 2020. So... Thank you for playing, guys, and catch up with you real soon. And happy anniversary, or I don't know what the right word, podversary, whatever the lingo is. I'm still the new kid in school with this. So check your inbox, meme coming your way, and um, thanks for playing. So, all right, on today's episode, I am going to be talking to you about one of my personal all-time favorite films. I cannot even begin to count how many times I have seen it. But I do have to admit, one of the reasons why I have seen it so often is because I have incorporated it into the film class that I teach. So I want to go back in time to 1967 and take a look at that cultural juggernaut, The Graduate. The Graduate, starring Dustin Hoffman, Anne Bancroft, Catherine Ross, directed by Mike Nichols, written by Buck Henry. And that brings us to this week's trivia question. 
The Graduate was nominated for the Best Picture Academy Award, but instead that year, that's 1967, the Oscar instead went to what film? And I can give you a hint, the film that got Best Picture that year also got Best Actor for British actor Rod Steiger. One more hint, this Oscar-winning Best Picture was later adapted as a television series in the 1980s. So, okay, so there's your question. What was the Best Picture winner of 1967 that got the Oscar over The Graduate? All right, to really tell the story of The Graduate, the silver screener's way, you have to allow me to take you back to June of 1996. I am going somewhere with this, so stick with me, please. <laughs> I had just finished college. But true story, true story, right hand to God. I had just finished college. It was June of 96. I was, you know, I had my degree in English. I had no place to go, meaning I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, like pretty much anyone else, like pretty much anyone else, uh, I wanted to do something worthwhile, something that I thought would make a positive difference in the world, something that I could point to and happily say was, you know, part of my identity. I mean, who doesn't want that, you know? So uh, then this guy who was friends with my father was over one day and he congratulated me for having graduated recently. And I said, you know, thank you. And, you know, that was it. Or so I thought. He then turned to me with a joking smile on his face. And he said to me, I have one word for you. Are you listening? And I said, yeah. And he said, plastics. And I looked at him with an expression of WTF before WTF was even a thing. So uh, this guy, I feel bad looking back on it now, but this guy, uh, his joke fell flat, no fault of his own. He looked at me and said to me, haven't you ever seen The Graduate? And I had to admit to him, no, I, <laughs> no, I haven't, not yet. I'd always heard of it. I've been a film buff since I was knee high to a grasshopper. I took my first film course in college, but no, I had not yet seen The Graduate at that point. So I did what any Generation Xer would do. I hopped off down the street to that relic of retail known as your local video store. I rented the VHS of The Graduate, took it home, watched it. Then I got the gag. That's a line from the film, Plastics, which we'll get to in a bit. This guy, by the way, is sort of a PS. He, he moved out west. I think it was New Mexico or maybe it was Arizona. I don't really know where he went, but uh, he was, he's been out there for a really long time. Uh, he was already out there, in fact, when my father died only a few years after this conversation. So it's not like I saw this guy, you know, then either. So I haven't crossed paths in forever. So wherever he is, he probably has no memory of this. But thanks to that dialogue exchange, I saw the film. And well, there you go. So <laughs> there you have it. So, okay, walk over this way towards the year 1967, all right? You with me? That's good. All right, so society in 1967 is a mess. You have the deep divisions as a result of the war in Vietnam. You have the evolving civil rights movement in full swing. You have the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy in the not too distant future. In the middle of all of this, there is this huge surge in newly discovered and or maybe you should say newly claimed personal freedoms that the younger generation was eagerly embracing that shook everybody else to their core. Uh, liberation, personal freedoms in the political sense, in the moral sense, in the sexual sense. You had the counterculture movement, not just anti-war protesters, but you had hippie communes, 
you had peace-seeking activists, people who were basically throwing out their parents' generation's way of approaching life. You know, like uh, San Francisco, Wear Flowers in Your Hair by John Phillips, you know, uh, some by Scott McKenzie, you know, there's a whole generation with a new explanation with mantras that they were going around with, don't trust anybody over 30, stick it to the man, make love, not war. I mean, this was a, this was a trend. This was a trend towards chasing your own way of finding purpose and meaning in your life. And for some, that was LSD. For some, it was promiscuity. For some, it was brazen defiance of authority. For some, it was simply going to acid rock concerts, you know, <laughs> Woodstock as well. Um, and in 1967, in 1967, which was actually two years before Woodstock, but in 1967, a modest little film based on a book that really nobody had read, it was not exactly flying off the shelves. Um, this modest little comedy was released just before the Christmas holiday. I speak, of course, of The Graduate. The story of Benjamin Braddock, played by Dustin Hoffman a 21-year-old. He is fresh out of college. He returns home with absolutely no idea what he wants out of his life. Up until this point in his life, he has spent his time doing his damnedest to live up to his wealthy, artificial parents' expectations. The plastics. Now, you see what they did there? <laughs> Not exactly subtle. Granted, they do sort of hit you over the head with that particular piece of symbolism in the dialogue, but we can forgive it because... You know, it's it's a great line. <laughs> but um, he looked at his parents, didn't have much respect for their shallow and materialistic ways. Um, and up until that point, he has spent his entire life just meeting their expectations, just doing what he was always expected to do. He has done everything the plastic way, what he saw as meaningless and as a waste of time. And this is where I want to tread very carefully, because as a teacher myself, I'm not looking to discourage any of the things that he did while he was in college, but I'm speaking strictly in terms of the way that his character saw everything. Things like making Dean's List, uh, becoming a track star, becoming the yearbook editor, all of the, all of the right things that would give his parents plenty of ammo, plenty of ammo whenever they wanted to, whenever they wanted to boast about their trophy son, their only child, to to their equally shallow and materialistic friends. At the beginning of the film, his parents are even throwing a party to celebrate his success, a graduation party. Only the thing of it is, none of his own friends are there. <laughs> it's just the parents' friends. Uh, there are no guests his own age, no friends from college, no friends from high school, not even the kids, not even the kids of these party guests. So the liquor is flowing freely, the melodramatic and the phony pride that uh, in his academic success, is palpable in the air, and he is miserable. He is miserable. He is being shuffled around, like physically shuffled around from person to person, from friend of his parents to friend of his parents, and they're all gushing in his face about, you know, oh, we're so proud of you. We watched you grow up from a little boy, and look at you now, and you're going to become, you know, you're going to become rich, and you're going to be you're going to be a success story. Proud, proud. And I absolutely love the way that the director of the film, Mike Nichols, I love the way that he has the camera handheld and it's thrust so closely into Dustin Hoffman's face throughout all of this as he is passed around and, you know, physically grabbed by all of these adults. They're kissing him on the cheek. They're aggressively shaking his hands. They're, they're asking him the question that no unsure graduate wants to be asked. 
What are you going to do next? What are you going to do with your life? They're breathing their alcohol into his face. Now, I don't know about you, but it would be my own personal portal into hell on earth if I had to experience something like that. So the fact that the camera is thrust right into his face, it's just, it's just so perfect. It's just, you feel just as claustrophobic as he does. So uh, one of these patty guests is Mrs. Robinson. The luminous Anne Bancroft in her Oscar-nominated performance. Now, Mrs. Robinson, she is the wife of his father's business partner. And she and her husband, they are trapped in an empty marriage. Um, she is middle-aged. She's looking for her lost youth. You get the sense that she wants, that she wants validation, that she is still desirable. And she succeeds through a lot of sweet talk and coy manipulation she actually gets Benjamin to agree, the socially awkward, bumbling, and hapless Benjamin, to agree to uh, drive her home. She says, my husband has, uh, you know, my, my husband, has, he's elsewhere, and I've been drinking a little bit too much, so would you mind driving me home? So he drives her home. He leaves his own patty, he leaves his own home, drives her home, and there you have the story beginning to take off. You have a, a briskly paced, highly amusing, and to be honest, very cringeworthy scene uh, where she is flirting with him and she offers him a drink and she tells him that her husband won't be home for hours. And he is beginning to put two and two together. And he says one of the film's most famous lines of dialogue. He says to her, oh God, Mrs. Robinson, you didn't think I was gonna do something like that. And she giggles and she says to him, something like what? And he says, Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me, aren't you? And she just chuckles in his face. So, I mean, this is, this is like a Rock Hudson, Doris Day sex comedy taken out of the, taken out of the playground sandbox of late 50s, early 60s cinema and like thrown into late 60s, like thrown into a, into a heaping portion of late 60s cynicism with a hearty side dish of ick. So the dialogue is razor sharp, the, the on-screen dynamic, it's the stuff of movie legend, the sordid unfolding plot developments, they very much reflect the era's attitude, the time period's attitude of screw convention. So many great lines of dialogue, uh, but a highlight, another highlight line of dialogue is when he gets cold feet as they are finally later on they are finally alone in a hotel room uh, both by choice and he is beginning to he's getting cold feet he's having second thoughts he doesn't want to insult her and so she coyly and manipulatively says to him do you find me undesirable and he needs a glass of water to wash down his foot when his response is oh no 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 i think you are the most attractive of all my parents friends i do so here's to you mrs robinson indeed right so the film, or at least the first half of it, operates as a, uh, as a witty, sardonic comedy, very much of the time, a look at what goes on in the minds of privileged suburbanites who do not have it all, despite the way things look from the outside. So um, a word of advice, by the way, if you decide to look up the book that the movie is based on, it's... Admittedly, it's a pretty obscure book. The author's name is Charles Webb, W-E-B-B. -B. Uh, you're not gonna find, you're not gonna find Dustin Hoffman's or Anne Bancroft's characters in the book. And you're certainly not gonna find Simon and Garfunkel. 
um, that Benjamin, the, the Benjamin from the book, he's much more serious and he's much angrier. He's he's more like a he's more like a Holden Caulfield of his generation, you know, from Catcher in the Rye. Um, it's worth noting, though, that the book, the book was written and published in 1963, which was really before the counterculture movement really kicked in, at least here in the States. So, yeah, you still have the defiance and the anti-conformism, you know, in the same vein as Holden Caulfield, you know, not liking phonies and that kind of thing. But like I said, Benjamin in the book, he is much more hostile and he's prone to surprising outbursts, which is certainly not what you have with Dustin Hoffman's interpretation of the character. Dustin Hoffman plays him as a guy who trips over his feet and stammers and, and just, you know, is just socially awkward. So anyone who links the title, The Graduate, with the film, uh, you'll be in for quite the ride if you visit the book. I'm not saying don't read the book. It's actually pretty, it's actually a good read. Um, I, I actually have it. So if any of you would like me to uh, send it along to you, just contact me. Uh, I mean, it's the same story. It's the same plot. It's told from a completely different perspective. You know, it has its moments of intended humor, I guess, according to the book cover anyway. But I personally had a dig when I was reading it to find those moments, which I'm sure they're there, the moments of humor. Uh, they're probably buried somewhere underneath the the much more angry and brittle personality, which may work for some people. It's all what you're looking for, I guess. Um, one final note, uh, get the soundtrack to this 1967 film. Oh dear God, download it and you're welcome. You got Simon and Garfunkel, you got Dave Grusin. Crack up the Simon and Garfunkel ditty, the big bright green pleasure machine that plays in the film when Benjamin and Elaine Robinson are sitting there in their car and eating their burgers and fries at the drive-thru on their date. I'm telling you, this is a soundtrack that'll make you feel really groovy. So sorry. Um, one little, one final PS is that there actually was a sequel, not to the film, but to the book. Charles Webb wrote the original book, The Graduate in 63, and he later on, decades later, I think it was probably 2007, 2008, somewhere around there, he wrote a book, a sequel. He wrote a follow-up to The Graduate and it's called Homeschool. And Mrs. Robinson is in it. Benjamin is in it. Elaine Robinson is in it. So you have all the familiar names uh, and it's set about uh, 10, maybe 15 years later. And, uh, um, yeah, no. Uh, I mean, <laughs> he's the author. He's the one who created the characters. He can write whatever he whatever he wants to write. I fully respect that. But uh, I don't know. I guess I'm just so spoiled from the from the film. So all I can tell you is is if you have not seen the film before, or if you haven't seen it in a while and you forget a lot of it, treat yourself. Savor every last delicious detail of this film because there are so many great lines of dialogue. I will say the first half of the film is probably much more comedic than the second half. The second half does sort of shift tone and go into more self-serious rumination, um, but it definitely does uh, regain a comedic momentum in the last, oh, I would say 15, 20 minutes. So definitely stick with The Graduate from beginning to finish and you will be glad that you did. So there you have it. Let me know what you think of The Graduate, the movie, the book, the soundtrack, the dialogue, any or all of the above. Just shoot an email to Frank Mendoza. That's all one word, 
no underscore, just Frank Mendoza with an A and an S, frankmendoza at yahoo.com. You can also get in touch with me on social media. If you're on Twitter, simply follow me at filmbuff1974. If you are on Instagram, you can find me at frankmendoza1974. If you're on Facebook, please go ahead and join my public film group, Silver Screeners, same title as this podcast. And don't forget, take a crack at what 1967 movie got the best picture Oscar over the graduate. You'll get a shout out, a no strings attached plug for anything you want to put out there. I will happily plug a podcast of your own, a book that you wrote, music that you've written, a website, an album that you've recently released, whatever, send it my way and I will give you a plug because people help people out, you know, that's how it works. So thank you. Thank you once again for listening. And like I said, The Graduate, it is a timeless classic. You will be glad that you saw it. So until next time, keep on screening and I will see you next time.